Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here again today, and thank you to Jeff for giving us a really another in-depth discussion about some important ways to think about how to present our faith and, and how to deal with issues that may come up that uh, maybe we don't know the answer to. And yeah, like Jeff said, even as a scientist, there are scientific questions that you know I don't know about. I have to take some time to sit back and study it or, or maybe just pursue it in terms of what would God say about this and what does the Bible say? So that was helpful, and I, I hope that uh, in this next talk here, I'll be able to present um, some information that I think will be encouraging uh, to each of us when we consider how unique we are as living beings. And uh, I mean, that, that should be an encouragement, believe it or not. Um, science has not discovered life outside the earth. And so life here is, is one of the most remarkable evidences for God as the creator. The fact that there's life on this planet is uh, extremely um, potent as evidence for something beyond nature. And so I hope to be able to present some of the rationale for making that statement. And, and why can we believe that um, really the fact that there is life indicates the fact that there is a creator. So may the Lord uh, help us out here, and uh, we'll go through this. So um, life information and the limits of nature. And I'm, I'm going to focus on this a little bit, this idea that nature as we know it, meaning the, the world that God has created with its laws, what I call laws of physics, maybe I'm biased because I'm a physicist, but um, we don't usually call them, you know, the laws of other disciplines. So, uh, but there's limitations to what natural things can do. And uh, that has some relevance for what we're talking about here. So looking at, at just sort of an outline of some topics that I'll cover here, you can just quickly read through those. Um, I'll be speaking a bit about something known as information theory and, and how that affects or is relevant for this topic of life and, and how that actually points to something beyond nature. And um, I think the conclusion then, at the bottom line there, is if we can actually scientifically say that life is not a natural outcome, something that would happen naturally by the laws of nature, just acting on the material at hand, then the only logical conclusion that we can draw is that life is actually supernatural in its origin. And again, so that provides us um, some, I guess, apologetic that is in line with our belief in the Bible. So a starting place uh, is just perhaps to ask, you know, from a scientific perspective, is life predictable? You know, imagine a um, kind of a super scientist that just uh, was observing our universe when it was first formed and uh, observing the physics of the universe, knowing the forces of nature, looking at the material that was in existence. Would this super scientist be able to predict that somewhere down the line, life would come into existence? And um, I would say no. Um, in fact, I don't know of any scientist that is actually I don't know, a real scientist that could predict that. Um, what could be predicted? Well, you could certainly predict, based on our knowledge of the way nature works, you could predict the existence of stars, and you could predict the existence of planets. And you might be able to predict a certain amount of chemistry, you know, you could perhaps predict that, as it mentions here, that something simple like sodium chloride or common table salt would, would form, understanding the 
types of atoms. You've got atoms that are um, more likely to attract other atoms, and, and so you can predict certain ones coming together, and maybe even certain molecules that are somewhat more complicated than salt. But I don't think you could get much further than that. There's, there's no sort of definite outcome to which, you like, like if you, you know, take a rock to the top of a hill and, and sort of push it down, you can predict that it's going to roll down the hill and end up at the bottom. But I don't think you could uh, just predict that the forces of nature are going to just sort of roll matter and energy together and form anything that looks like a living cell. Okay, so, so that's, that's one thing. And, and almost I would say that if you can't predict it, it's probably not going to happen naturally. Why? Well, life is, is not simple. It's not ordered. Um, it's complex. It's complex in the same way uh, that the information in an encyclopedia is complex. If you looked at the pages of an encyclopedia and studied the letters, you notice that they're not ordered in any way. When I say ordered, I mean something like a repetitious pattern. And, and they're not random. They convey meaningful information, right? And so they're, they're specified according to the rules of the English language, if we're reading an English language encyclopedia. And they're, so they're specified in a particular way that conveys information, um, but they're, they're complex in that, it, again, it's not just, say, the same word repeated over and over and over again for 500 pages in the encyclopedia. So we talk about this idea of specified complexity, and I will um, address that in, in a number of different ways as we go throughout this talk, because that's a way to describe living systems. If you look down at the biochemical um, structure and organization within the cells of, and, and all life consists of cells. So I'm, I'm going to often refer to cells, but that is sort of uh, a placeholder for all of life. There is no life apart from cells, okay? And um, we can never find anything Believe it or not, there's, there's no other structure that's ever been discovered on Earth or anywhere else in the universe that even comes close to resembling a living cell in terms of its specified complexity. Nothing comes even as a close second. Um, so I would say that that means that life is improbable. And I included here a quote from um, a biologist is a Nobel Prize winner, but who isn't a believer. And so it's interesting as you read this, this um, person is suggesting, yes, indeed, the idea of chance producing life is incredibly improbable. And then the last phrase, and, and yet chance alone did it all. Because if you have the philosophical worldview that there is nothing besides nature, there's, meaning there's no God, there's no supernatural input, <laughs> then what else do you have except kind of a lucky roll of the dice that somehow, against all odds, came to pass? So that's actually, in my mind, not particularly good science either. Um, now, this idea of, let's see, do I have, okay, I'm going to stop here. Can chance produce every outcome? You may have heard this in, in, in popular literature that's, again, sort of non-Christian based, will make that suggestion that if you just wait long enough, anything can happen. And I think Jeff addressed that a little bit with this multiverse idea, which sort of increases exponentially the number of rolls of the dice that you could possibly imagine. And so if you just have enough time, uh, really any outcome will happen. 
And I, I've heard those arguments before, even kind of within the context of physics, but it, it just isn't so, and we'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Um, so what can nature produce? This is one example. Um, this experiment, um, Stanley Miller and, and Yuri, um, actually quite a, a long time ago, decades ago, thought about how can we produce life in the lab? Well, let's try to, you know, they're saying, let's try to reproduce the atmospheric conditions that existed on early Earth. So they put some gases into uh, a flask and then they you know, essentially sparked it with like a little spark plug to simulate lightning, provide some energy. And um, they, they waited and then they saw what formed in the bottom of the flask and they analyzed it and they found actually a few amino acids. And if you know anything about biology, you know that uh, amino acids are essential for production of proteins, which are part of our, um, our makeup. And so they said, okay, we've got amino acids. That means we're well on our way to showing that nature could have produced life just by itself. However, this is, this is just a, f a red herring. It's, it's an aborted uh, attempt to go any further. There is no comparison between being able to produce even a few amino acids, and there are 20 some, I think 20 actually, different kinds of amino acids in living systems. Being able to produce a couple of those and then claim that that's really just a, you know, it's just a few more steps and you've got life. That's so hopelessly uh, kind of naive that it, it's not even worth talking about. And yet this experiment shows up in almost every astronomy textbook that I've ever taught from. When they get to the final chapter and talk about, you know, life in the universe, they'll always refer to this, like this is some big deal. But there's many things wrong with this. For one, they started with the wrong mix of gases. Um, since their time, they've been able to understand that the early Earth contained a different uh, type of a mix of gases, not the ones that they used. And when you use the correct ones, you get almost nothing of biological value. Um, the other thing is you need to go further than amino acids to actually show that there's anything like life. Amino acids are not life. They're just ingredients. It would be like going out on a hike in the mountains. I'm from the Pacific Northwest originally, so that's what I did growing up, was going out for hikes on mountains. And um, I remember this one trail that my dad loved to take us on this hike, and we always had to clamber over a rock slide to kind of get to the other side to eventually get to a mountain lake. And so finding amino acids in a flask would be like climbing up the mountain and going over this rock side and finding a few brick-shaped rocks, you know, rocks that are more or less kind of rectangular, and then going, wow, look at this. Nature has produced brick-shaped rocks. That obviously proves that nature produced all of the cities on Earth and all of the buildings because we've seen these brick-shaped rocks, and so therefore nature can easily produce you know, the Empire State Building and, and the Sears Tower and, and everything in between. Of, of course, that's folly, right? Well, it's the same level of folly as saying that you can produce life because you've seen amino acids. Okay, so I mentioned that there's this idea that natural processes, just given enough time and random chance, can produce anything. Well, there's some physical reasons why that isn't so. Meaning when I say physical, I mean there's laws of physics behind the prohibition against chance just producing anything. So take, for example, this universe. In, and Jeff mentioned the periodic table. Okay, how many elements form naturally in this universe? And depending upon how you count it, because of some of them are unstable, it, roughly 92 different elements. So how long has the universe been around? 13.8 billion years, according to astronomers. How big is it? There's this galaxy with 
billions of stars, and then there's hundreds of billions of other galaxies, and throughout that entire universe, 92 elements have been produced over billions of years. So there's just one example. The laws of physics prohibit there being hundreds of different elements. There's reasons why there's only 92 elements. If you try to form elements that are, say, up into the hundreds, or there's no such thing as even artificially forming elements with um, you know, 200 or more proteins, uh, protons, and the reason for that is just that the forces of nature cause them to fall apart faster than they could form. So, again, it doesn't matter how long you wait, this universe is not going to produce a greater variety of elements than that. And so take that principle and apply it to this idea that if we wait just long enough, natural processes can produce complex things like a cell. That's just not true because there are physical reasons why that won't happen. So the universe actually lacks the properties that can allow it to produce just a random variety of anything and eventually include life in that category. And so I would say that even, as I mentioned here in, in this last point, the idea of a, un of a multiverse that the kind of secularist would appeal to is again coupled with this idea that if multiverses exist, then anything can happen. And the idea behind that is that idea that random processes will produce universes with every possible outcome. But if our study of this universe is any indication of what a multiverse would look like, the multiverse is going to be boring. It's going to be multiple copies of pretty much the same thing because there's bound to be physical reasons why if there are other universes, they're going to be mostly the same. And so I don't think that that's going to help us with, again, say, or help us, help the naturalists, the secular uh, worldview person, to come to the point where they can claim that because there's a multiverse, anything could happen. We just happen to be here because we're one of those multiverses. And so, you know, chance got a lot of chances and we came into existence and so there's no reason for God. So anyway, that's, that's a little different take on it. Um, here's a statement from a rather well-known uh, biologist who is um, supportive of the idea of there being a designer. And, and I think that this is important to realize. A cell, even a single-celled organism, has no connection with anything else that we see physically within this universe. The complexity within the cell, it's, it's like a metropolis. If you could imagine the busiest metropolis in the world, the most sophisticated city with transportation systems, with you know, um, structures, with communication systems, with resources, um, that would be simple compared to what's going on in a single cell. And each of us have not just billions, but trillions, maybe a hundred, up to a hundred trillion cells in our bodies, all with you know, many different functions as well. Okay, so I would say that chance has not a chance to produce life. So why is that? And again, there's physical reasons. And I, I love this argument that's coming up here, the, the first paragraph in yellow. It's not original with me, but um, comes from a mathematician philosopher um, named William Dembski. Uh, he works with the Discovery Institute that, uh, they're actually the group that published my book called Cancelled Science, and they're very supportive of uh, the idea of God being the designer. Um, so why are there limits to what chance can do within this universe? Well, let's, let's look at the universe in a very pragmatic way. For instance, 
um, how, many how many particles are there in the universe? You know, life is made of particles, atoms, right? And, and Jeff mentioned some of them, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, and, and a few other, phosphorus, and, and so on. So atoms are made of elementary particles, like protons and neutrons and electrons. Those are the raw ingredients out of which everything in the universe is made. So how much stuff do we have? It's like if you're playing dice and you're rolling dice, you would ask, well, how many pairs of dice do we have? That's kind of the first question. Science can tell us that. Within this observable universe that Jeff defined for us, there's roughly 10 to the 80th particles. So 10 to the 2 is 100, and 10 to the 3 is 1,000, and 10 to the 6th is a million. So this is 10 to the 80th. So that's a really big number. I, I don't have a name for that number. <laughs> so that's how many. Now, these particles, if they're going to make life, they have to interact because life doesn't consist of just one particle anywhere. So you've got to build big, complex molecules, right? And so they have to interact. Well, if they interact, that, you know, is bumping into each other. <clears throat> so how rapidly can particles um, bump into each other? Well, there's a physical limit to that. And these are exceedingly beyond practical reality, but this is just the maximum limit. How rapidly they could bump into each other is 10 to the 43 times per second. Nothing in the universe can happen more frequently than the, that. Again, that's a big number, 10 to the 43. That's a trillion times a trillion times a trillion times about 100 million. Okay, so that's a lot. That many times per second. <clears throat> Okay, so you've got all these particles bumping into each other at the maximum possible rate. Well, how long can that go on? Well, only as long as the universe has existed. And if you put that in seconds, it's about 10 to the 17th seconds. Okay, so now, you take each of those numbers, there's three of them there, and you multiply them all together, and you get 10 to the 140th. And so, essentially, what you can say is that no event in the universe can happen by chance if its probability is less than one chance in 10 to the 140th. Because that's the limit of what has been termed the probabilistic resources of this universe. And it's extremely generous, what I'm giving it here. That's like taking the entire universe and having it focused on producing one thing, which, you know, of course doesn't happen because the universe is spread out, so not all the particles can interact with each other. And so the, the actual maximum for probability is far less than one chance in 10 to the 140th. So compare that with what does it take to make just a single, just one moderate-sized protein that you would, found, you would find within a living system. A protein is a molecule, you know, it's used for structure, like our hair is made of protein, it's used for um, kind of catalyzing reactions like enzymes and so on within the cells. So proteins are the sort of the workhorses of the cell. And just take one moderate-sized protein, which would be composed of a string of, you know, maybe 150 amino acids. Getting the right amino acids connected together in order forms a protein if it folds up into the right three-dimensional shape. Okay, so a little biochemistry there. So we can calculate the probability that one protein would form by chance. And this has been done by biologists, and it's about one chance out of 10 to the 164. So that's a lower probability than the kind of the least probable thing that could happen in the universe. In fact, forming one protein by chance, as it says there, is a trillion times a trillion times less likely than the least probable thing that could happen by chance in this universe. Big problem for those who think that life could have formed naturally. 
because life is far more than just one protein. <laughs> and we can't even get one protein. Uh, you know, within our being, our physical being, there are tens of thousands of different proteins, different ones. Each cell is making proteins in your body at the rate of some few thousand per second. That's every one of those trillions of cells is making proteins. We're just doing it all the time. But that's through the living system. To get it from raw ingredients, you know, the atoms floating through the void that collected and formed on Earth, and there's, you just say there's no God, but just atoms, and somehow it all came together. There's, as I said, not a chance for chance to produce life. And I think this is extremely robust physical arguments. There, there's no, like, slip around to the side with some slick application of some concept from mathematics or biology or chemistry that gets around this. This is a, a showstopper in my mind for trying to explain that or to claim that life came about naturally. So, you know, again, if we want to just kind of well, let's explore the question further. What can nature produce? Because I do think that nature is good at producing a lot of things. Um, so in general, two categories of things that nature can produce, just based on what the properties of nature um, are sort of inherent with. And so it, nature can produce random things, uh, clouds, um, you know, I flew back here from the West Coast just a couple nights ago. And when we took off from Oregon, we <laughs> had to climb up through this big cloud layer and, you know, eventually got up above and it was still sunny and that was kind of beautiful. But, you know, clouds, we're familiar with those. Those are just random collections of water vapor molecules. Um, Dirt, nature's good at making dirt. <laughs> um, mountains sometimes made of dirt. Uh, if you kind of go out into space, nature's good at making gas clouds. We call them nebulae in, in science. You know, they're made up of mostly this hydrogen and helium with a sprinkling of other uh, atoms mixed in. Sometimes gravity collects all that gas and clumps it together by the attractive force and, and pulls it together and compacts it into a thing we call a star. Nature's good at making stars. Stars are big, but they're simple compared to even a single cell. I mean, think of the size difference. A single cell, you can't even see it without a microscope. And, and then a giant star like our sun that's a million times the volume of Earth. But the sun and other stars are simple compared to life. And, and one way to, to kind of get at that is to use this little analogy. Suppose you had a giant spoon, and you were a giant, and you stuck that spoon into the sun, and you stirred it up. I was making pancakes last night, and I stirred up the batter, because we got home you know, after this conference, and we're all kind of energized, and my wife was saying, why don't you make Swedish pancakes? I was like, great idea, this is awesome. And so, you know, 10.30 at night, I'm stirring up the pancake batter, and um, so imagine you're stirring up this star. What's going to happen? Well, it might stop shining briefly because you disturb the kind of the density gradient that produces the uh, fusion energy reactions in the in the core of the star where it needs to be at a high temperature and density. But if you pull the spoon out, gravity will just settle it back down and, and produce the concentration of, of heat or rather density in the core that makes it hot and it, it'll just start up the nuclear reactions again and it'll start to shine again. Because it formed naturally, you stick the star or the spoon in, you stir it up, you're not destroying it, it'll just settle back down and eventually be a star again. But now think of a similar thing with a, a living organism. You can either think of a single cell or you might think of like a little bug or something and you take a little needle and you stick it into the cell and you stir it all up. 
break up all those chemical bonds in there, of those biochemical molecules, and then you pull out the needle and wait. Will it settle back down and become a cell by just the forces of nature? Absolutely not. You could wait until uh, the stars all burned out and that would never reform into a living thing because the laws of nature will not recreate that because they didn't in the first place. There's no physical process that brings all those atoms back together to make them into a living cell. So that tells us that, um, in a sense, nature can't produce a living cell. So the other category of things that nature can produce that sometimes is mistaken for, like, oh, look, nature can make fancy things like snowflakes. And, and they're kind of ordered, and, and, and life is ordered, and so why couldn't nature make life? Well, back up one step. I said life is ordered. That's a mistake. Life is not ordered. Life is not repetitious. The arrangement of atoms that make up any sort of a biomolecule is not repetitious, like the um, crystalline structure. Crystals are repeated arrangements of the same atoms or molecules. That is nothing to do with the way life is down at the biochemical level. Life is complex, just like in that encyclopedia. It's not the letter, like maybe just a set of letters repeated. You know, if you open an encyclopedia and you're reading it, it goes A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, and you turn a few pages, it's still going. That would be completely worthless, right? There's no information there. It's, it's complex. There's, there's no pattern. You can't, like, write a computer code that says, okay, I want you to um, generate this pattern of letters and then repeat. That doesn't produce anything that contains information. Life contains information, in fact, far more information than in any encyclopedia. Okay, so living things, and I show some wheat here, uh, living things are neither random, they're not just like the molecules that make up a cloud or a pile of dirt, they're not repetitious, living things are not made up of atoms arranged in repetitious uh, patterns like you might find in a crystal or a snowflake or something, but complex and specific, just like the letters in some newspaper, novel, uh, computer code, anything that... How are all those things produced, by the way? How are encyclopedias, novels, computer codes produced? Well, there's an author, right? There's, there's an engineer, you know, maybe a software engineer writing the computer code. Does, does Microsoft have some big random number generator and, and they eventually pull out the results of that and go, wow, this is going to be the next version of Windows? Maybe, maybe sometimes it seems like that's what they did, but <laughs> no, they, they've got a lot of really intelligent well-trained, hard-working software engineers that are designing the code in order to do something functional. And it's the same with life. It has that same uh, structure. It's not written in letters like on a page on a book, but it's written with um, molecules. And for example, here on the left is a little tiny short piece of the DNA. And believe it or not, um, these cross pieces that look like kind of like rungs on this uh, spiral ladder, each of those are nucleotide bases. So there's two different ones. You can see there's slightly different color here to show that. And they connect together in a, a set of um, three or so of those will form what we call kind of like a, a letter it, or a, a codon. And it actually then a, a string of these, much longer than what is shown there, um, codes for a particular uh, protein. And so DNA contains the code for building these proteins. So that's how life can 
do it where natural processes cannot do it. Why? Because life within itself has the instruction manual. Well, that's, this is, if you read this whole thing, it's, it's longer than any, not just single volume of an encyclopedia, but any set, the whole complete Encyclopedia Britannica doesn't have anywhere near the information as in DNA because um, the number of kind of like letters in DNA is something like three billion. And it's, uh, it's an enormous amount of information. And that's not even all the information that is required to generate a living thing. That's just part of it. Um, by the way, this on the left, it kind of looks like a brain, but it's, it's just a single protein molecule. It has a specific three-dimensional shape, and it, it has a specific functionality based on that. So this is part of what life is. Um, now, again, to sort of look at the physics of what can nature do, um, there are secular biologists who would like to claim that, okay, so life is complicated, it's, it's specific in, in its arrangement of the biochemical molecules, so obviously it can't just all form at once. You can't even just form everything together in one cell. So sometimes what the secularist would like to say is that it's possible to get to where you're going if you just kind of take little steps um, one after another, and you know, the longest journey begins with a single step or whatever. So uh, you, you maybe can't jump up to the top of the cliff in one jump, but if you kind of go around the back side of the mountain, there's this long gradual slope that you can sort of walk up slowly by, the point is they're trying to make is, okay, so it's really hard to imagine life just forming in one lucky clumping together of the raw ingredients. But what if we got the first step, and, and that was just one little thing, and then you know another little step, and then you take a whole lot of little steps, and eventually you're at the top of the mountain, and you have got life. So that's sort of what they're saying. So really what we need here to answer that proposal by the secular scientist and, is to say, well, how does nature deal with information with the passage of time, because these complex molecules that make up life can be described by an amount of information. And you can actually quantify that for, for any molecule. And so I'm sort of going to switch here from talking about the complexity of biological structures to talking about the information within those structures. Okay, so what does nature do with information? Um, well, it turns out that one point is that in any system, you know, if it's gases in a flask or chemicals in a container or a warm little pond or something like that, the information that can sort of coalesce out of that solution cannot be any greater than what is in the solution to start with. Okay. And the second point is that with the passage of time, and that's what this um, is saying here, with the passage of time, it is not possible for natural processes to systematically increase the information content of a closed system. So a closed system like a flask or a warm little pond or the ocean or the entire universe, whichever you know, boundary you want to take. You can't expect natural processes in any way to increase the information content with the passage of time. And, and so what does that mean? Whatever information level the universe had at the moment it formed, that's it. As far as natural processes go, the only thing nature can do is degrade that information with the passage of time. Now, again, a simple analogy to show you and convince you that nature degrades information with the passage of time? Suppose you've got a newspaper, I mean a physical 
old-fashioned newspaper, and you're reading it, you've got all this information, right? Well, now let's let nature operate on the newspaper. So you, you put it outside, um, and, and the rains come, and it gets wet, and um, you know, the wind blows, and it rolls it around, and more rain, and then the sun comes and beats down on it. And then after a few weeks, you go out and you find your newspaper. Does it have new news articles in it? Is there a new story, new information there? No, I mean, it might have just turned to a pile of pulp in which you can't read anything. The information is lost. Or imagine that your cell phone falls out of your pocket and, and you back your car over it. Um, or it just, again, maybe is, is lost outside and, and you find it later. It's not going to work better. It's not going to have new programs on it and, and new apps that do cool things. It's, it's going to be broken down and degraded. Or imagine a, a possum. You know how they walk, kind of <laughs> going across the country road. And here comes the pickup truck and smack, and there's the dead possum. Okay, so it, it's a living system. It's got all this complex biochemistry in it, right? Now it's dead. So it's very close to a living system. It's just got shook up a bit, and it died. So, I mean, what could be easier than for something that is almost alive to come back to life? But does that ever happen? No, natural processes will degrade the possum if it just you know, sits there long enough. Again, it kind of turns to a pile of dirt. That's what happens to complex systems that are filled with information with the passage of time where natural processes operate on them. It degrades it. It degrades the information content. And, and this is, is a law of physics, it's related to the second law of thermodynamics, but it's, it's not just probably what you learned in high school physics class, it's, it's um, more of a quantum mechanical version of it that relates to uh, quantum statistical mechanics. But basically, this law says, it's really important to realize this, regardless of what we might conjecture to be the alleged natural explanation for the increased complexity. So imagine you've got Earth in the early stages, no life, and then there's life, and it's just single-celled life, and then later it's complex animal life, and then eventually it's human. So it looks like an increase in information content and complexity over the passage of time. But this cannot have come about by natural means, because natural processes will always degrade information with the passage of time. So the fact that we have gone from non-life to life, that step in itself points to a miracle. The fact that we've gone from single-celled simple life to complex animal life, that speaks to a miracle because natural processes don't do that. The fact that we've gone in the history of planet Earth to where humans show up on the scene, more complex. That speaks of a miracle because natural processes degrade information with the passage of time. They don't improve it. Um, this one is just kind of fine. So uh, funny because I thought of this idea about, okay, it's like we have a Lego universe, a big box of Legos. And um, natural processes would be like taking the box of Legos and, and shaking up the pieces and seeing what comes out. And, and, you know, you might get something like that where two or three little Lego blocks, or maybe those are actually the ones for young kids. I think they call them Duplos or something. It's been a while. But they might kind of accidentally get hooked together in a little simple pattern. But that's it. And one of the reasons it won't get better than that because it's if you keep shaking, there's just as likely to fall apart than to add something new. And so you're not going to you know, shake the box of Legos and, and have some structure like this come out. This is actually made of Legos. 
thousands of Legos put together into a recognizable pattern. That's not going to happen by you know, throwing a bunch of Legos into the lake and letting the waves kind of slosh them around. And it takes a team of intelligent designers to do that. So anytime you see systems that are complex and functional, it comes about from design. I spoke with a, a man who was here last night who used to be a part of this church, and, and he's an architect. Um, and you know, he were, we were commenting on the idea of design, and, and he was saying, I really relate to this because I work with designing things all the time. And I said, yeah, that's right. And engineers like that, architects, and engineers and architects know that good design does not happen by random chance. There's only one way it happens. Smart people work hard. Right? And so we are design systems. Life is a design system. So take the analogy. How did that happen? We're not willing to concede that things like laptop computers or or new skyscrapers happen by chance. They're designed and built by intelligent beings. Why would we allow anyone to tell us that the most complex thing we've ever seen, namely a living system, why would we allow someone to say that that happened by chance? Okay, so um, again, just limits on what nature can produce. Uh, imagine shaking the box of Legos and I, I said here, what could you imagine a, a functioning microwave oven popping out? Um, I don't think so. So I argue that nature is a child. What can nature do? Well, it can do some beautiful things, uh, make a, a sunset, but pretty much everything in that picture of the sunset, you know, it's a, a scene with the sun setting over the ocean, and so there's some waves in the foreground. All of that can be explained by the laws of physics. The reflectivity of the light on the water, the wave pattern, uh, the, the colorations in the clouds, all of that I know how to explain by the laws of physics. Nature is good at making things like that. That's just due to the laws of physics. But this is not like part way to a living system. This is simple. It's not complex specific like the characteristics of life. Um, so again, with this analogy of art, saying that nature's art is child's play. So I, I uh, contributed uh, an example of childish art there. You know, if, if you've had a, a, a two-year-old with a pen, you know, you know, you might get something like that. And they would say, and it's like, wow, that's beautiful. You've got talent. I put it on the fridge, you know. And, um, but to kind of go beyond that, uh, you know, having a, a painting like the Michelangelo's uh, creation of Adam, that takes intelligence and skill, not just random motions of a pen. Okay, so another sort of attempt of the secularist in the naturalistic worldview to say that life happened is to appeal to what I call um, an information ratchet. Or, or just the ratchet mechanism. And you know, think of like an old-fashioned um, kind of a, a, a jack that might jack up your car. You know, you put the thing under there and, and you've got this lever and, and you push it down and it lifts it up a little bit and then it, it catches. And then you push it some more and it lifts it up one more notch. Okay, so there's, there are ratchets. Now it turns out it's really interesting. I did a study on this. There's almost no examples in nature of natural ratchets. Ratchets seem to be things that humans have made, but to find them in nature is, is problematic. Well, this example is, is um, from the 1800s. Uh, actually, uh, a scientist who was a, a believer, uh, James Clerk Maxwell, proposed this idea, thinking, like, maybe this is a way that we could uh, in the context of this discussion, it had to do with producing energy, kind of getting energy for free. 
And, and so the idea was take a box that's closed and it's got some gas in it, and those are the little gas particles there, and there's a partition in the middle of the box, and in the partition there's a little window or a trap door, and then there's this little demon. This is how it was phrased, Maxwell's demon, but you know, here we're in church, so maybe we should call it a little creature. But anyway, this little creature can open and close that trap door at, at will. And so what he does is when he sees a molecule coming to his side that's moving faster, um, he opens the door and lets the faster one into the compartment on the right. And, and if it's a slow-moving molecule, keeps the door closed, keeps them on the left. And energy in a gas is connected with the average speed of the molecules. So if he collects all the fast-moving molecules on one side and leaves the slow ones on the other side, then effectively he's got high-pressure gas on one side and low-pressure gas on the other side simply by kind of, you know, deciding which ones move fast and which ones move slow and just sort of collecting them on one side and the other. And then that gas pressure difference can be used to do work. And so you've, you started off with just a box of gas and now you've got a machine. And all you had to do was use your information to, you know, spy out which molecules are moving fast and collect them on one side. And so this was a conundrum for the physics community for uh, a couple of decades. Like, how do we get around this? Because it seems to suggest that you can get energy from nothing. And conservation of energy was a, a foundational idea in physics. And so, um, must be the Maxwell's demon playing with that. But anyway, the idea eventually was overturned by uh, another scientist because it was shown that it actually takes energy for the little imp, I'll call it, to figure out which molecules are moving faster and slower. You know, how do we look at something and, and measure its properties? Well, looking means that light has bounced off that and entered your eye. So if you're talking about a little particle, for him to look at it, he has to essentially have a photon of light bounce off that and come back to him. There's a couple problems there. It, it takes energy to gain information. And you can do a very careful systematic study of this and show that it takes more energy to gain the information as to which ones are moving fast or slow than the energy you can gain by having that information. And so this is a failure at a perpetual motion machine or, or something that gains energy for nothing. So the point is, you can't use information to gain energy. So what happens if you tried the inverse? Will the inverse process succeed? Because that's sort of evolution. The idea of evolution is to essentially take energy to gain information. This Maxwell's demon thing has been proven false. You can't, it's physically impossible to use information to gain energy. So I think that the inverse would also hold true. Can energy produce information in, in any sort of a system? Um, actually, I would say it fails because information is needed to apply the energy intelligently to increase the information content that you have. And then in yellow, the initial information needed to make a selection. Like if you're going to select for advancement of life forms, you have to know which direction you're going. You have to know how to select that. And that always, ex that information that you need um, exceeds what you gain. So our, I argue there are no natural information ratchets. So this is just a short overview of a topic that I addressed in, in this article. Um, you can find it at this uh, evolution news. You know, it sounds like it's pro-evolution. It's actually against evolution, but that's what it's called.
Okay, so famous biologists have suggested that perhaps life on Earth was seeded here by extraterrestrial intelligences. Because some biologists realize, yeah, getting life to happen by chance, that, that's a losing game. Uh, and so maybe life came here from some other planet. And uh, biologists as famous as Richard Dawkins have, have suggested this. Now, if there's life out there, maybe they're trying to communicate with us. That's how the story goes. And so there is an ongoing search for extraterrestrial intelligence by using giant radio telescopes to listen in to the heavens and see if they can pick up any signal that's not just background noise from the gas clouds and stars and things. Um, so far, it's, it's nothing. There's constant radio noise. How do they sort out what's radio noise and what would be some intelligent signal? Well, again, they apply these same discriminatory kind of discrimination factors that I talked about earlier. Information that would be coming from an intelligent mind is neither random nor is it repetitious. We can pick up both types of signals from space, random and repetitious signals. But if we ever picked up any signal from space that was, say, in radio form, sending the information that's coded in DNA, that would be heralded worldwide immediately as definite proof, conclusive proof, that there was an intelligence out there that was communicating with us. So I, I say that information is available for us to see, but it's not being beamed to us by radio waves from space. It's seen by turning our telescopes into microscopes and looking at the cell, and the information within the cell is screaming, intelligent source, intelligent source. So it's there. We just have to acknowledge it and recognize it. So information of any sort always points to intelligence. You know, any information that's meaningful points to an intelligent source. I mentioned, you know, architects and engineers. They know that their designs did not come from just random scribbles. It was intelligent minds that produce it. And that information we see within the cell points to an intelligent source. I would say it points to something far beyond any possible um, intelligence that we could dream up in this universe. And so it would point to a divine intelligence. So an intelligent mind is the only source. And I believe that even our ability to generate information, I mean, we can write books, we can write computer codes and encyclopedias, but that's because we've been given the image of God. We've been given in a, the mind of, you know, in a sense, a portion of the mind of God. And so our ability to be creative and generate information, whether it's in art or, um, you know, writing or, or in music, that I think is a reflection of our God-given capabilities. You know, again, think the, the secularist would say that, oh no, we got to this level by random processes through the evolutionary kind of chain that started with non-life and eventually cranked its way up, ratcheted its way up. You know, there is still opinion to that. And so our intelligent minds are now able to write books and compose symphonies and design space shuttles and all of that. But that, that just isn't even logical. How can random processes lead to rational thought? I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, you know, what's more reasonable to think that matter gave rise to mind or to believe that mind 
gave rise to matter. And so I would say that the mind of God is what gave rise to all things. Um, some physicists are getting this. I think this is where actually modern physics has, has led to this conclusion. Um, there was one of the most famous physicists from um, the last century, John Wheeler, um, coined this little phrase after studying physics, it from bit. Main, what that means is it, that stuff, is from bit. That means like the computer bits, like information. A little catchy aphorism. Um, this quantum physicist uh, more recently has explained this with this statement here that I've, I found quoted, I quoted in my book, but um, I think it's really interesting that this quantum physicist actually says information is the irreducible kernel from which everything else flows. It might even be fair to observe that the concept that information is fundamental, that's, that's the conclusion physics is reaching. Information is fundamental. This physicist says that concept is very old knowledge. Witness, for example, he says, the beginning of the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the word. I mean, I found this in a, a secular science journal. I was like astounded. This is, you know, a lot of scientists wouldn't even acknowledge this, but these are physicists who are dealing with the forefronts of, of the reality of what this universe is made of. Um, okay, so I will end there. And um, again, this my book has a whole chapter on information theory and life and, and how the natural processes cannot lead there. And I include on the left uh, three a reference to three articles that I've written, again, for this uh, website, Evolution News. You can look them up there. Um, and it goes into a little more depth of some of the topics that I've described. So again, thank you very much. Uh, time's up, so um, Pastor Bob is here, and we'll see what comes next. <laughs>